0: Yes, well, unless you've been living under a rock, you know the coronation is on tonight. The ultimate pageant in the best British tradition. So is humour about the royals on full display late last month during a BBC debate on the monarchy's purpose. The musician Billy Bragg had his own take on it. Billy Bragg, in your system, where would they live? You'd still have a king and queen.
1: Well, yeah, you still have a king and queen, <laughs> and you probably have the the Prince of Wales as well. Um, and uh, you know, we could chip in a bit to that, I suppose. But they do have a lot of land, and they do have a lot of income, so maybe they could pay their way a little bit more. Uh, they could probably, I'd get away maybe. They'd have to choose two out of three out of Balmoral, Buckingham Palace and Windsor. And whichever one they didn't want, then we could turn that into... I mean, Buckhouse would be the obvious one. Cause it's what right happened the to it? Sandringham? Huh? What happened to Sandringham? Oh, they're all gone, mate. Oh. They're gonna, they're, yeah, we can turn <laughs> it into a hospital. That can be a hospital. Yeah. Just <laughs> that, the, the big three. They can choose out the big three.
0: We know, we know all those various royal sites so well. That's the point. But should you be at a quiz night, here are some extra facts for your team. Of the world's 195 countries, 42, believe it or not, are still monarchies, the British being the most famous. The countries with the oldest roots in monarchy are Japan, Cambodia, Oman, Morocco and Norway. What has this institution represented in cultures of the past? What does it represent now? Let me introduce you to a man who's spent quite some time speculating on this question because there are probably as many opinions as citizens, especially here in Australia. Stephen Bates covered royal matters for The Guardian for many years and he's just published The Shortest History of the Crown. And there's a lot to learn. Welcome to the program.
1: Hi, Geraldine. Nice to speak to you.
0: The Guardian's royalty and religious affairs correspondent. Now, a lot of listeners may be surprised to hear such a role even exists, given The Guardian's overall approach. Did the editors allow you sort of full steam ahead?
1: Uh, Yeah, I always used to say uh, when I was working at the paper that I I covered two uh, institutions that The Guardian didn't really believe in. (laughs) Um, But... uh, uh, with the idea that um, you cover your enemies more closely than your friends, uh, I was appointed to cover the royal family as an institution and a historic and political entity as much as um, what uh, Kate Middleton was wearing or um, or what, what Meghan Markle was up to. Oh, I bet you got so, that in um, there, though, it, to it, some it extent, a, didn't you? Oh, yeah, they wanted that as well. But I had a higher purpose, it was thought.
0: And look, interesting, and it is interesting in terms of our discussion, that it was twinned with religious affairs. Now, in your examination down through the centuries, can we assume that monarchies and religion are generally intertwined?
1: Well, not necessarily in other countries, but um, certainly the church has played a huge and central part in... um, British society, not so much these days, but over history, and in sustaining the monarchy as an institution, right back into the Dark Ages and the arrival of St. Augustine in Canterbury um, and converting the English king of of the East Wessex. These were... um, bolsters to temporal power it was a spiritual influence and uh, that's what's happening with the coronation as well which follows a pretty traditional pattern of having uh, the Church of England uh, involved in the ceremonials other countries don't tend to have coronations certainly not like the British do and certainly not with the religious input that um, the coronation of King Charles will have
0: No, and in fact, one of the very interesting discussions around the Catholic Church these days is what's now believed to be the terrible mistake that the Church made during the French Revolution times, when it fundamentally defended the aristocrats and the monarch, and, you know, were were perceived to be very much on the wrong side of history, you know, in defending the
1: monarchs who were gradually losing their power. Well, that's right. Of course, Henry VIII over here... um enlisted uh, the church in in fact created a a new church in opposition to the papacy and uh, the church of england uh, stems ultimately from that Mm -hmm. and it still um, maintained the uh, royal power even Mm -hmm. as uh, henry viii filched most of their property and an awful lot of uh, their wealth
0: Look, in the last couple of hundred years, the monarchs that have lasted have generally ceded lots and lots of power towards parliaments, as you say in your book. It became the main institution. Was there much tension between the original power brokers in the royals and the new ones, would you
1: say? Does it exist at all now? Uh, yes, it does. I mean, the the Church of England um, has lost a lot of its support in the pews. I mean, very few people go to church on Sundays on, on a regular basis, but it it still clings to its established status. The Church of England is one of the few religious uh, organisations across the world, which uh, still maintains a a sort of formal part in the constitution, still has bishops in the House of Lords, the upper chamber. In fact, it's often said that uh, only the House of Lords in Britain and the Iranian parliament still have uh, religious representatives as of right there. But things are changing. Um, 70 years ago, when the Queen was crowned uh, in 1953... You didn't have uh, participation by any other religious groups other than the Church of England at Westminster Abbey. This year there's um, representatives of all the main faith groups in the country and um, they all have a part to play in the ceremony. Mm. But it is still a Church of England ceremony.
0: It was quite interesting, a, a commentary, I think, from the London Daily Telegraph, I think it was, making the point that some of Charles's recent discussions have almost uh, they've sort of stressed the role of service workers who serve others and it was perceived to be a, a little bit of a commentary on the tory party now I'm, I'm not asking you to get into politics but you know this is what i mean about subtle tensions that might
1: exist between the two groups yes i think that's i think that's true and of course the church of england as a christian body has tended at least in aspiration, to side with the little people against the the rich and powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a pretty anomalous position. They've been like um, ostriches um, looking in two directions at once and burying their head in the sand in the middle. But in terms um, of the
0: monarchy's role, I suppose.
1: For about a century and a half, the British monarchy has at least paid lip service to uh, dealing with and appreciating the work of ordinary people It started uh, with Edward VII when he was Prince of Wales and Queen Victoria had withdrawn after the death of Prince Albert. He uh, became, because she denied him any sort of constitutional role, he became a a figure who went round opening things, contributing to charitable causes, paying visits to deprived areas, that sort of thing. And that's continued because the British monarchy has appreciated that it doesn't just serve the rich in a society it has to um, act as a unifying force in society and of course not only in Great Britain but uh, it tries to do so in the 14 other realms including Australia when it visits.
0: Um, Look, the role of the media, as you say, is a critical change in the life of modern monarchs. It's given monarchs new ways to be seen and heard, not just by their subjects, but by the whole world. And it's given them greatly enhanced visibility, but at a heavy price. How heavy, in your view, is that price?
1: Well, it's turned the monarchy into a national soap opera and uh, occasionally Uh, a a national joke. But um, if the media didn't exist, uh, the royals would not last very long. Because as the late Queen used to say, you have to be seen to be believed. Uh, You have to constantly be at least a, a more or less visible presence in the national life. Otherwise, people really do begin to question whether it's worth having you. So... It's a Faustian bargain as far as they're concerned. They have to perform for the media uh, much as they loathe doing so. If they didn't, they'd be gone.
0: Gee, that's quite blunt. There's a a very interesting line that you put in your book. Yet one has to ask, in the full glare of studio lights, how much magic can remain? Uh, because there's magic critically involved, isn't isn't there in the in the maintenance of uh, of royalty? And um, gee, we've certainly seen that challenge, shall we say, with the whole Prince Harry stuff.
1: Uh, well, that's certainly true. Um, and I wrote that I think before the latest Prince Harry uh, interviews and uh, what have you. Um, yeah, that was really taken from a, a line in a book by. The 19th century constitutional historian, uh, Walter Badgett, who said, um, warned of the dangers of letting daylight in on the magic of monarchy. It was supposed to be a rather concealed and a a, a rather mystical entity. And if you open the curtains wide, it starts to shrivel. Um, Well, that hasn't happened. In fact, probably the reverse has happened. But it's been a very painful experience, as um, all the current members of the royal family have discovered over the years, Charles with Diana and now Harry with Meghan. Um, They won't appreciate it, but it does help sustain interest and loyalty uh, in um, in the institution. Do you think it encourages loyalty? Yeah, I do, actually, because... um, while it exposes their flaws, it shows that they're humans as well as um, demigods, you know. Um, Demigods was how they liked to perceive themselves 200 years ago, and certainly um, back in the days of the divine right of kings, back in the 17th century. Um, As uh, someone once said to Queen Victoria when she was uh, not appearing in public, uh, the people like um, some guilt for their money, gilt uh, <laughs> rather than uh, guilt you know if if you're um, helping to pay for the institution you demand the right to see them and enjoy them and uh, i just wonder whether happens. they can
0: have normal family lives and you know again in terms of the role it plays inside the culture it certainly sort of leaves one with some questions
1: well you have to play the game you have to show yourself If you're not there, then um, the institution begins to fade, and uh, that's something Mm. that the um, brighter members of the royal family appreciate.
0: Well, it's interesting, though. Like the look at thinking of whether there are substitutes. The Kennedys, you know, developed a bit of a reputation for a while as America's royal family. Now, if titles like this can be bandied about, I wonder what that says about real royal families or, accordingly, the society's need for something that is, oh, I don't know, vaguely irrational but
1: full of mystique? Uh, Well, maybe if you were starting from here, you wouldn't invent a monarchy, but it has that long, certainly in Britain's case and, as you said at the start, um, other countries, it has those deep traditional roots and people rather like that. I remember going on a royal tour to Canada once years ago and uh, a million people, a million Canadians, not the most um, excitable race on the planet, um, turned out to see uh, Prince William, as he was and is then, and, uh, and Kate Middleton, his new bride. A million people thronging Ottawa, which is not a huge city, just to catch a vague glimpse of them. And I said to a Canadian journalist who was uh, covering uh, the day, what appeals to Canadians about um, this British young British couple? And he said, we like the monarchy here, he said, because it's something the Americans don't have. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I, th- I think there's quite a strong element of truth in that. The most obsessive royal watchers in the world are Americans. And they tend to try to Pretend that they're rather proud that they did away with the British monarchy 240 odd years ago.
0: Yes, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> Vladimir Putin trying to rehabilitate the the ruling Romanovs, um, you know, on a a, a trip I was lucky enough to make in 2019, you know, and watching them sort of rehabilitate and restore the Bolshoi ballet and the curtains were of the Romanov um, insignias. It was extraordinary to see. Yeah, I
1: I think Vladimir Putin rather wishes he was a Romanov himself.
0: (laughs) Um, Thanks so much for your time. That's great. Nice to speak to you, Geraldine. And Stephen Bates will be covering the ceremony for The Guardian. He's the author of The Shortest History of the Crown. It's published by Black Ink Books. And it's been fascinating, really, to see who's part of the Australian delegation. Quite a wide group. Nick Cave's inclusion has perplexed many, and he answered some of his fans on his web page, The Red Hands File, which I've been urged to read. I am not a monarchist, says Nick, nor am I a royalist, nor am I an ardent republican for that matter, what I am also not is so spectacularly incurious about the world and the way it works, so ideologically captured, so damn grouchy, as to refuse an invitation to what will more than likely be the most important historical event in the UK of our age. Not just the most important, but the strangest, the weirdest. And he goes on to describe meeting the Queen. Look, it's well worth reading. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen
1: app's call and text features.